Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of March 2020 and this is episode 153. On today's programme, David Martin talks about his recent book on the 66th East Lancashire Division during the German Spring Offensive in March 1919. This book was published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to David from his home in Shropshire. David, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, well, it really started with some medals we, I had as a child. Um, the sort of thing you don't really take much um, attention of much interest in as a child and we used them in the school play and all that sort of thing but I never really paid much attention to them but uh, I, I had actually visited some of the First World War battlefields the Somme and Verdun at a reasonably early age but it wasn't really until I went to university perhaps my natural interest in the First World War came out that I actually thought um, oh, maybe I should actually research these and there, there were apparently some great great uncle or something like that uh, but as I said I haven't paid much attention to them but it was only actually when I was already a tour guide on the Somme taking people around the battlefields that I actually came home and actually looked at the side of the medals because First World War medals have the name of the person on the medal uh, so I found out it was my great great uncle um, a Colonel Percy Priest who'd obviously served in the Boer War and the First World War. Obviously, being being in France at the time and um, without the internet at the time, I, I couldn't actually do any quick research. But in, in the, the next winter, uh, I came home and started looking things up. And uh, I found out that he was a colonel in the post office rifles. Obviously, my family does have some links to the post office already. So it's only natural that he would serve in the what was the Powell's Battalion of the Post Office Rifles, the London Regiment. This this all took several years, and I tried to look for him in the First Battalion of Post Office Rifles, which was with 47th Division, and with no luck. And I literally couldn't find him. It was only several years later, obviously work getting in the way, uh, when I was a tour guide around the Battle of Passchendaele, that. Uh, a couple of army guys came up and said, oh, we're interested in doing a tour for some of our men of the uh, Victoria Cross action of Sergeant Alfred Knight, who was a, a sergeant in the 2nd Battalion, the Post Office Rifles. I said, oh, that's funny because my great-great-uncle was a colonel in the Post Office Rifles and that they helped me actually realise about the that there was a second line of of the battalion who served in the 58th Division, uh, of which I knew very, very little. And so that's really how it started. So why did you write a book on the 66th Division focusing on their experience during the German Spring Offensive of 1918? Yeah, well, um, the, the way I actually found the 66th Division was that there's a memorial in Passchendaele Church, um, part of the Ypres battlefield. And um, I just felt that they'd been rather forgotten um, and I, I thought I'd, I might write a, a, a book about their experiences at Passchendaele, but I didn't do that because the, the more interesting thing, and in fact the higher casualties, happened in the German Spring Offensive after the Battle of Passchendaele um, about three months later. 
So can you give us some background on the division, where it was raised, what engagements it fought between 1915 and 1917, its composition in 1918, and what sort of units comprised its infantry brigades? Yeah, um, it was formed from from battalions from East Lancashire, parts of the East Lancashire Regiment, uh, Lancashire Fusiliers and the Manchester Regiment. So it was very much a very local, locally raised unit in, in its early days. And did it retain that composition up until sort of 18? Uh, yes, it did. But um, it, it was moved around uh, on home service and ended up in uh, Colchester. And so it absorbed a lot of conscripts uh, from from the Midlands and from London and from from East Anglia as well. So what was its position on the 21st of March before the Germans attacked? And where where was it exactly? Yes, um, it was near a a village called Ronsoy. If you want an idea of this, where this is, um, if you've ever driven from Calais down um, down towards the Alps, you actually pass over this battlefield on on the modern motorway. It's near St Quentin and Cambrai. Okay, so what was their what was their actual role um, to be in on the twenty first of March? What how were they sort of in the front line or were they in a reserve position? The division were in the front line position. They actually had most most of their troops in the front line trench, which was not necessarily a good thing, uh, as we'll see. The front line was normally, and certainly by the Germans, held quite lightly. And then you have a uh, we had a battle zone behind that, which is made of little forts, which which they were meant to be digging over the winter. However, because the winter was so harsh, uh, they hadn't really managed to get very far with building the, these redoubts. So um, if you think of, um, of, of these redoubts being rather like uh, Rourke's Drift in, in, in the Zulu War, lots of little groups of men uh, in this battle zone, and then you got a huge flood of Germans coming towards them. And were they part of the Fifth Army? Yes. And so that was under General Goff. So they, they'd, yeah. they'd actually been, so they were obviously meant to construct these defensive positions against uh, an expected German attack. Obviously, manpower and other things that made that very difficult. Yes, they, they had even brought labourers in from, from other parts of Europe to try and help them dig these defences. Of course, the, the spring thaw happened so late that they were really rushing in the last month to try and complete defences against the attack that they knew was going to happen. And so what actually happened on the 21st of March when the Germans got out of their trenches and came across no man's land? Well, there had been early warnings and um, an odd patrol had actually spotted that the German trenches were actually full of soldiers, which is an obvious sign of impending attack. Although the days before the attack had been strangely quiet, which was another sign that something was up. One patrol actually spotted that the German trenches were actually full and they, the command uh, realised that this was the day of the offensive and uh, ordered down a heavy artillery barrage on the waiting Germans. And were the Germans assisted by the legendary fog? Yes, very much so. The The troops in the trenches really just couldn't see their, their, their hands in front of them. Certainly couldn't be, see beyond their barbed wire. And of course, Dawn that that time of year only occurs relatively late compared with some of the summer battles, which happened the battle actually started um, very early in the morning, about three or four in the morning. But being March, the Germans couldn't actually start until dawn had broken. And obviously with the fog, that also would have hindered the Germans as well. So they they started the attack 5.30 in the morning with an artillery barrage that lasted up to three or four hours. And what was the impact of that barrage? Well, on the front men who who were crammed in our frontline trenches, the, the, the battalions 
some of them were just literally never heard of again. They were wiped out. So what what how, what happens to these units? So, I mean, the Germans obviously cross them as that, and I assume they do that with with relative ease, given the the, the preparatory bombardment. What happens during the rest of the twenty first of March? The the Germans attack about um, it varies from about nine to ten o'clock in the morning. Uh, obviously, some resistance is put up in the front line, but as a general rule, the troops in the front line have been smashed to pieces. Some survivors flood back towards the redoubts in the battle zone and reinforce their colleagues who are actually uh, in in these redoubts. And were, and did they manage to stem the German attack at all on the 21st? Uh, yes, the, the battles of the redoubts meant that the the, the Germans were held up. That's true along the, the whole front of, of the British 5th and 3rd Armies on that first day. And what units were to the left and right of the 66th Division? Just to the north was the Irish Division, the, the, the 16th Irish Division. Um, to the south was the 24th Division, who, who actually uh, win one or two VCs that morning and have a major uh, stand at a place called Le Vergier. Was, was the 66th position um, affected by uh, sort of what happened on its left and right flanks? Um, I don't know whether either unit gave way and therefore put the 66th division in a position where they had to withdraw. Although the um, division to the south really held firm, there's an ongoing debate between the 16th and the 66th divisions about who gave way. The historians of the 66th blame it on the Irish and the historians of the Irish blame it on the 66th division. So uh, that's probably something that won't ever be resolved. But that w- what we can say is that the the join between the the Irish and the 66th Division was heavily attacked, and that's that's where a, a kind of a crack appeared in the British defences. At the end of the 21st, what's the situation? Some of the the redoubts in the area have fallen, but others have, have, are just about holding out uh, overnight. But it, it's largely to the south where the 24th Division are, where this uh, more, more more resilient defence is, is being maintained, that the line holds. But obviously there's been this fracture uh, between the 66th and the 16th Irish Division, where, where the Germans are actually sort of flooding through uh, the British defences down the valley towards Ronsoy. And did the Germans attack in the, the traditional way we thought they, they do on the, in the spring offensive where they've got stormtroopers leading on and then they've got uh, other units which then deal with the redoubts and, and mop, mopping up, so to speak, behind the thing? Or or is it a more a conventional German attack? Um, no, this this is the, the new German tactics. The German attacks um, are, are very heavy, uh, but it does seem that because the, the British artillery is is largely left unhindered, although it had been uh, bombarded by the Germans, uh, we're obviously able to fire a massive artillery bombardment back at the Germans. Although we don't really know where they are because of the fog, which is a bit patchy. Planes, because the fog can't get up up to spot for the artillery, um, we are already guessing um, about where the Germans are. We obviously throw down huge artillery bombardments in response at junctions and other points. And uh, we are actually causing uh, a large amount of casualties to the Germans. So what happens from the 22nd of March onwards? Uh, yes, uh, by the 22nd, the, the, the sort of the idea of these redoubts, obviously, they have a huge amount of, of stores and uh, bullets and hand grenades, but they largely use these up in, in the first 24 hours. And so by the morning of the second day of the attack, the people in the redoubts realise that the Germans have got round behind them because they can't hear much artillery fire. So they know the, the front's moved back 
all communications were were gone with virtually the first German bombardment the, the day before, the morning of the offensive. And they realised that the battle has moved on. So they reckon that their, their, their job is effectively over. So those that have managed to last that long then surrender. And were these actually investigated after the war? Because there were some, some, some issues that some soldiers during the, the, the spring offensive actually surrendered far too early. Or did they actually fight on to the last you know, bullet? And there's no point in fighting on once you've run out of ammunition. That obviously uh, does happen. And there's obviously the, um, since we're talking about the East Lancashire's, of course, there is the famous stand of Manchester Hill, just to the south, um, a few miles away. And But there's there's a lot of incidences, um, exactly the same as Manchester Hill, where they, they, they stand fast, they cause lots of casualties to the Germans, but then obviously uh, they're surrounded by the Germans, they realise that it's game over, and there's obviously a strange moral quandary in the First World War that when you realise that the game's up, your ammo's out, you aren't in fact going to just stand there and be mown down. It, it's time to save what's what's left of the men in the redoubt and just surrender. And this happened on, on both sides. There's both extremes from extreme valour and saying, no, I'm going to die here like Colonel Elstob at Manchester Hill. And there's the other thing where if we surrender now, We'll be treated relatively well, and um, we, we've done exactly what we were meant to do. Part does the 66th Division get pushed back with the other units on its left and right flanks over the, these sort of eight days uh, from the 21st? Oh well, I mean, um, a few days after the the, um, the attack, it actually falls back to the Somme River. They, they were helped a lot by um, a, a considerable amount of British tanks, which were brought in, and they just kind of roamed around, just firing all their bullets off into the uh, fog and again caused a huge amount of casualties. But the actual division fell back behind the Somme at the bend in the river by, by the town of Peron. And so how, how, roughly how far is that from their initial positions on the 21st down to the 28th of March? That's about uh, five or six miles. But by the actual, the, the effective end of the battle, they're, they're right back at, um, outside the town of Amiens, uh, near the town of villers bretonneux and are they withdrawn from the line at all, or do they keep going right the way through until the end of March? Uh, no, they, they kept fighting uh, for the eight days of the offensive. So what sort of casualties are we looking at over this sort of eight-day period? They had 7,000 7, casualties in eight days, which is half the strength of the division. And how many of those, do we, is, it, is it possible to get a breakdown of how many of those were, were obviously combat casualties and how many of those were prisoners? Uh, yes, um, the actual... Uh, casualty lists of time list a relatively low amount of men as killed in action, but a very high number, about 5,000, as missing in action. So they, they obviously they didn't know because there were so few men left in the division in the front line at the end of the battle that uh, they literally didn't know where all the men had gone. So what factors led to this sort of destruction of the division? Was it superior Germans or bad British or combination of both? This, this overholding of the frontline position on the 21st of March on, on a front that was a bit too long, but was still slightly undermanned, but they put, pushed too many men into, into the forward trenches. Uh, it was the redoubts which hadn't been effectively constructed because the winter had been too severe to actually dig properly. And then it was the speed of the German advance. They tried to filter in men of the 50th Northumbrian Division, but they arrived too late and the Germans were already creeping into their positions. And so they had to pull back. It was a very fluid battle. 
and we actually were pushed back after the initial day or so much faster than than we we expected or hoped. Is there a, a memorial to the 66th Division? I think you touched on it earlier in your answer. Yeah, um, in fact, there are two. There's the one that inspired me to write the book, which is the stained glass window and chapel in the church at Passchendaele village um, at Ypres. And there's there's a there's a horse trough down at Lakato to commemorate what it did in 1918. And finally, David, where can people learn more about your research and where is the book available from? Uh, the book is available from Pen and Sword. Um, David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.